Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Omar Espinoza with us today, who is an elementary school teacher who made it his life's mission to make video creating accessible to everyone. As a student who took English as a second language, ESL classes in elementary reading and writing were a challenge for him. It was because of this experience that he disliked reading and writing and only did enough to get by. When he became a teacher, he knew he wanted to change the way English was taught so his students would not go through the same experiences he did. Looking back at his childhood before the start of his second year, he realized that the funny videos he was making were actually developing his literacy skills. He noticed that figurative language and high academic vocabulary were highly used in his videos. So he decided to bring in the joy of making videos to his classroom. With his new project-based learning style, not only is he developing literacy skills in his students, but also fostering each student's socioeconomic skills, socio-emotional skills, I'm sorry. At first, he received a lot of criticism for using social media platforms for teaching, with the common reason being that it's not for educational purposes. Today, he's an elementary school teacher who successfully facilitated two Cleveland School Film Festivals and continues to mentor students through the art of film. Omar has also spoken at the California Association for the Gifted Conference and recently launched his free filmmaking website full of tutorials and video challenges for students to participate in. Omar, welcome and thank you so very much for being here. Thank you, Jesse, for having me. Man, it's crazy to me to think that you got pushback for using social media as a vehicle for teaching when social media is, it's not going anywhere. And that is going to be a part of the modern world probably indefinitely. Yeah, um, I wasn't allowed to put the school's name on the Instagram that I created for my class. And I originally started with R7 Dolphins, which was room seven and our mascot and it wasn't until a few months later where a lot of positive feedback was coming from that where I was uh, basically allowed to put the school name on it. Hmm. What was was there just a, they didn't want to associate the school was it like a thing that not seeing that the school name would be associated with personal personal opinions or something like that or yeah, it was the the first time social media was ever used in a school mm. setting, especially elementary, and uh, uh, it, there it was there was a lot of hesitation really at the start. Am I going to use it for positive, or am I? Since I was a younger teacher, I'm still a young teacher. Uh, am I really going to stick to curriculum or standards based? You know, and and it wasn't until we got that feedback where parents loved it. And honestly, a lot of the school announcements I posted through the Instagram account that Mm -hmm. a lot more parents were informed through that uh, uh, direction of communication rather than the school emails or school messages. Omar, I'm curious as an educator, what do you see Let me back this up. Uh, Right now, at the time of this recording, it's August 4th, 2020. And one of the discussions right now, very much in the U.S. and around the world, is kids going back to school. And what does that look like? With COVID going on, do they stay at home? Do they go to school? 
kids have been through a lot this last year. And I'm wondering, do you feel that education equips kids to be able to deal with the, the probably very difficult life challenges they're facing right now? And if not, where can we, where can we all work together to improve that? Uh, that's a very good question. And uh, as you know, everyone has the right to their own opinion. This is solely my opinion. Um, right now, we have uh, a lot of, you know, education terms, 21st century learning, project-based learning, and best practices. And I, I can't speak for all the teachers, but I really feel that we could do more plain and simple. We're doing great because a lot of uh, practices that I've seen through all the teachers who I follow in, on Instagram and I've seen their work, they do a lot of social justice uh, activities, discussions, Socratic seminars, but there's always more that we can do, you know, and state testing really doesn't get to shine a student's uh, thought process through four things because it's mostly a written test or a multiple choice test. So once we can finally change state testing to allow more of the qualitative data to be collected, then we can see education reform really push forward through what the students are going through. You know, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. It's gonna be a lot of money to hire teachers to watch the videos that students make to show their thought process. It's gonna be a lot of time and a lot of effort, a lot of money. But if we really wanna succeed in preparing these students for a world that has yet to be created, which is something that's been said a lot, mm. then we have to do things that we haven't done before. Omar, you were talking to me before we logged on about the difference between qualitative and quantitative education. I was wondering if you could touch on that and just explain the differences between the two. Definitely. So I'm in California. So we have the Common Core State Standards. And ever since I came into teaching, I've heard, I've seen every year there's a lot of uh, negative feelings towards Common Core State Standards. Why can't you just teach my child how I learned and how why why do you make it so complicated to explain something that's so easily solved? And the, and the goal of Common Core State Standards really is to develop and foster that thought process, the problem solving, you know. It, it, it's making sense of what they're learning in school out in the real world. And, and that's what I mean by qualitative education and not necessarily quantitative uh, education. Quantitative is a simple standard algorithm, 12 times five, you know, you carry the five or the one or whatever. And yeah. really quantitative or qualitative is draw a box or a rectangle, show me the different partial products. And that's really going to start your thought process to develop and problem solve. You're building or you're remodeling a house. How much square footage of tile do you need? You know, things like that. And if um, people say, well, I can do that because I, I could put it into practice. Well, that's qualitative right there. That's the moment you 
you start the qualitative process. And, and we're just really building students to be problem solvers, find solutions rather than I have a problem and that's it. Hmm. That's really incredible to hear because I, I actually just had this conversation, I think it was last week with three other people who are entrepreneurs and we were comparing our SAT scores. I think it I've rained. never, I'm, I've never taken the SAT. Really? Or ACT or anything. I went straight to community college and uh, I, I, I went that route. So I was never in the testing. So I can't tell you how my SAT scores were or are. Well, I'll tell you, if you ever wanted to have a competition, it wouldn't be a very stiff competition because I think between the four of us, I think the top score was a 1060 and the low one was an 870. And I think I took, and I think it's out of a possible 15 or 1600. And I, I remember when I took mine, so I took it twice. I think my scores were like 1020 or 1030 and a 1030 and a 1040. And I remember taking it at the time, there's so much pressure about going to school and that you have to not only get good grades in school, but then you also have to get a good SAT score and then that's going to get you in. And I remember there was this, all this like hope placed on me being able to go off and get an education because then my life would be made better than my lives and my parents. I wouldn't repeat their mistakes. And I had so much for me, I had so much personal baggage attributed to my parents in the sense of I felt like I had failed them as a young child and that I owed it then to them to make sure I went off to school to get an education to maybe give them that piece of happiness or that sense of purpose. When I got those scores back and looking at what it was the likelihood of admission based off of those scores in my grades, it was sub 50% or something like that. And I remember just feeling in that moment like such a failure, like such a fuck up, that I was just going to crush not only my dreams, but really my parent, my mom's dreams. And, you know, I often wonder if you observe that in kids, like, is there, what is the psychological or the emotional impact that kids experience if, if they have, well, first of all, I guess I should ask, because I'm not sure, do, do you still traditionally use like a pass-fail type system? And how does how do how does the traditional model of like quantitative testing affect the mental and emotional well-being of a kid i mean do you, do you observe those noticeable changes in, in them when they're taking on or are they taking on that kind of weight of the world like that because of that model definitely you know uh the same pressure that was on me growing up but the students have the same you know uh, my father didn't really know much about college. He just said, you're going to CC, Santa Barbara City College, you know, and, and he meant well. And I did go to Santa Barbara City College. I transferred to San Diego State, graduated, then went to UCSB and, you know, got my master's. But uh, he didn't really pressure me to the point where I felt, you know, uneasy if I don't make it kind of thing. But I, I, I've worked with certain families that they, uh, they, they had a tutor that went above and beyond for the student, which is amazing, but also stressed out the student. Remember, this is a 10-year-old having to endure the stresses of a college student graduating 
taking the upper division courses. And it, it, it's very unfortunate because I'm having to uh, pump up the students for state testing. Mm. If I have to do that as an educator, there, there, there's something that we need to change, really. State testing should not feel like a negative thing. You know, and, and yeah, it's how you sell it. Anybody, how you sell it. You pump the student up, great. But we, we need to make it, I feel that we can adjust to students. You know, we, we all talk about, we're all different types of learners. I'm a visual and a kinesthetic learner. If I'm listening to an audiobook, I need to be moving or else I start looking around and get bored. Mm -hmm. So why can't testing really be that? It's really a one size fits all. There are accommodations if students have uh, an individualized education plan and formally for uh, students with special needs, but um, it, it's all quantitative because at the, end of the, at the end of the year, I have to show parents, this is how your child tested this year. Does it reflect my teaching? Apparently it does. All on this two week window of a test because we break it down. If, but hold on, let me, let me tell you this. It's like if I'm talking to parents, let me tell you this. Your child showed the utmost respect when this happened during a group classroom project. And they learned how to be a leader and they did. That's not really tested on the state test. Mm. And that's, that's what employers want. Employers want someone who can lead, someone who's a problem solver, someone who can take on the work, but that it's really more of the problem solving and finding the correct answer. And that's really it. So I, I have my, my, you know, opinions about state testing. Yes, we need, I'll be on the record. We need it. We need to see how our students are doing. Data is not all bad. But the way we interpret the data, that's where we can improve, really. If you had, Omar, I'm really curious, if you had the ability to make one massive and immediate change in education that, in your opinion, would make the biggest difference for the well-being of, of kids, you had the budget, all those types of things, you know, there's no restrictions, no, no red tape, whatever the expression is to go through. You could just, you could literally snap your fingers and make it. So, so what is that change you'd want to make? To be honest, it would be, there, there's so many things, you know. Um, I'm giving you if, one. <laughs> if, I, if you give me one, honestly, I would say a late start every day. Really? I would, if we had the budget, because, you know, if teachers only work from nine to three, but we have to be there at eight, you have to pay us the hour, right? It would be a later start. Way too many times I've had students wake up early because their parents had to be at work early and um, they're tired. They're at school by the time I get to school, which is like 630. And they're out there waiting until 8, 8.30 till the bell rings to go to class. They're exhausted, they're tired. So if I had one immediate change, it would be a later start. And with that later start, to make sure every student was able to eat breakfast and have a transportation set up for them to get to school with them sleeping in, really. Because far too many times I've had students uh, feel drowsy, 
feel exhausted and I already know you're 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 not ready right now Hmm. and that's not a bad thing it's just your situation and there's multiple times I've had students go outside put your head down for 15-20 minutes and I'm and I'm I'm not bothered and my students already know and I make it known from the start if you're not feeling well if something happens or you didn't get enough sleep just know you can go rest and everybody knows not to stare not to poke fun because everybody's felt it so that is the immediate change i would make that's so fascinating and it's totally not what i expected you to say but as you were sharing that i was reflecting back on my educational journey and i've been i've been fortunate i've always been an early riser but I remember so many times friends saying how tired they were, how hard it was for them to get up. And I never really thought about it, anything else. I always thought, well, why, what's so weird? But as you were sharing, I remember working with this client several years ago. And one of the biggest things we really uncovered was that they were, their, their natural biorhythm essentially was a night out. And they were trying to fit into the normal eight to five, <laughs> nine to five framework. And so they always felt like they were just never producing their best work. And the change that we made was they had wanted to become an entrepreneur for a long time. They were scared to because based off of their performance at work, they were feeling like they could barely hack it at work. So how the heck were they going to hack it in, in the <laughs> real world, right? But then they also were aware that they would produce some really great stuff in their little side hustle they had. When we started to look at what was the cause of that and realized that they were a night owl trying to fit into that normal waking time and that that framework was actually handicapping them and we changed that, man, it was incredible watching what they did. They left, went working for themselves and what they started is their, their working hours became like, I don't know, it was like 4 p.m. to midnight or something like that mm-hmm. or you know, 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. I can't remember what it was exactly or it was something like that. I mean, the numbers were way past my bedtime. <laughs> and it was incredible because what happened is not only did they just blossom professionally and start to produce their best work, but they were so incredibly happy because they felt like they had just been for so long. They thought they were just lazy. Mm-hmm. They thought they were just lazy or there was something wrong with them or that there was just, they were, you know, they didn't fit in and, and there was this constant struggle with it. And then it was, it was like for the first time, not only were they producing the super high level, but they were, they didn't feel lazy. They felt like a high producer. They felt talented. They felt validated for like this innate, you know, stuff they had that they just never did. So yeah, I didn't expect you to say that, but now as you're saying that, gosh, that makes so much sense. And we keep saying, you know, when I'm an early riser as well, when I was commuting, I'm in Ventura, when I was commuting to Santa Barbara, no joke, I would wake up at four, four thirty in the morning and then just start my day, work as I'm, as we spoke earlier, I do have my own business, work on my business up until six o'clock, get ready and go, and then do, do my work. And I felt so productive. Now in the summer, where I'm not teaching, I feel I am not productive at all. Mm. Because I don't have those restrictions or the, that time frame of, this is the time I'm an early bird, this is the time I should work. I'm sleeping in past my, my, how should I say my being very efficient and, and it throws off my whole schedule. So I can totally relate to that. 
Omar, tell us a little bit about your business that you have with the video work. I want to make sure we just touch on that really quickly. As I know, I just looked at the clock and I know we're, <laughs> we're running tight on time. So tell us a little yeah. bit about your business. So my business is Create to Inspire Film, C2I Film. And it, it's really a video. Uh, I create videos for small businesses. And, and it really stemmed off of what I was doing in the classroom. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed making videos with the students and giving intent with it, right? The literacy part with it. And one day, listening to a Gary Vee audiobook, I told myself, why don't I just start my own business? And that has taught me so much about budgeting, finances, uh, legality with business documents, with the city, the taxes and all that, that it really helped really make me financially fit in my personal life. So I, I create small uh, videos for small businesses that don't have the time to create videos, but want to scale. So that's, that's what my side business is. Omar, I'm curious, and we'll have this be the last question because I know we're, <laughs> we're tight on time. I asked you what would be the change you'd make and you mentioned the later start. I'm wondering if, is there one, is there one skill that you feel is not being taught in classrooms right now that if it was, if it was taught, it would make a dramatic and dramatically positive impact on students' quality of life as they went forward in life? Empathy. And empathy is taught, but it could be taught a lot more. It should be just as important as reading and writing, I feel. Mm -hmm. And the reason why, and I know we're tight on time, no, no, please. Is, is because a lot of, uh, it's the foundation for anything. Empathy helps students understand how to have a discussion with someone who disagrees with them and really have a respectful discussion. I believe, and I believe this, you believe that, here are my facts, here are yours. But not only that, but also being open to change their opinion. A lot of, as we notice right now in our world, a lot of people have their opinion and no matter how many facts they get, they will stick to their opinion instead of saying, oh, I see your facts, maybe I need to start changing my opinion. And, and not only that, understanding if somebody has a bad day, right, who is mean to them, our first reaction is how I felt. I felt bad. And that's okay. That's a natural human response. But also backtracking and say, why did they treat me like this? Oh, did I have something to do with it? Or did they just lash out? Okay, could it have been something that I've been doing periodically? And now is the time it was the, the camel that broke the, or the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Or is it they're going through something and they just don't know how to express it yet, which is another reason why we need to teach empathy. So I feel that we need to focus on empathy as a core value, just like we do reading and writing and math and science. Omar, I'm wondering if I could just grab one more question off of you real quick. Because oh, go for it. I'm fascinated about that. If you wouldn't mind sharing a specific example of, of empathy and action in the classroom, because mm -hmm. again, I'm, I'm not quite as surprised as you said that one. And I, and I, 
And I totally agree because I think that's something that's sorely lacking, especially as we see it play out in our modern stage. So I'm wondering if you might have just a personal example for folks listening of how, you know, maybe two students who had a discussion or had a disagreement and empathy was, was taught and then they changed how they interacted with one another. Definitely. Um, uh, there was a situation where one student uh, was taking advantage of another. And this one student was very quiet, took it all in, took it all in. And at the very end, the student just had enough and physically hurt the, uh, the student that was hurting him, right? And as we all know, who hit who, got suspended, all this thing. But uh, when the two students returned, I went above and beyond and I spoke to them. And I was told the situation was taken care of, that's fine, just separate them. But I wanted really to take an extra step and say, what happened? And it, it took a while, it took about a couple weeks because the natural reaction is, you did, they did, you did. Let's backtrack, let's start using I statements. Let, let's lay out what happened and how we got to that point. And it so happened that the one student who was very passive just had enough and he didn't know how to express it. And it was just to the moment where he became physical. The other student said, I thought they were just joking. I thought they could take a joke because mm. they didn't say anything. So it was really a learning experience for both sides. The, the student who was very passive learned that I need to say something from the start or else I can get in a lot of trouble for physically hurting somebody. Now, the other student said, just because they don't say anything doesn't mean that they don't like it. I should start asking, do you like, are you okay? Am I bugging you? I'm just joking around. So mm -hmm. it, it's really giving that the, the language to have those conversations. And, and ever since that moment, I knew empathy had to be one of my core values that I teach. Dude, I love that. Everyone, gosh, is this one full of wisdom. You know, we're talking about education and school. Do not let it fool you that the principles and what Omar is sharing today is completely applicable to what we're all experiencing in our day-to-day -day lives. My goodness, imagine if empathy was, was a common practice in our traditional discourse. We could all, speaking of that whole social media and using social media to teach, we could all learn a thing or two with our social media practices Imagine the next time somebody posts something that we may or may not like or we downright disagree with. What if we, we responded from a place of empathy? What if we sought first to understand versus accuse? We sought first to consider what might be going on in their life versus demonize them for having a thought or a feeling that is different than what we think they should be thinking or feeling. I love the idea of starting the school later I never really, I didn't expect Omar to say that at all, but then as I consider it too, I think, you know, it goes into that whole eight to five, nine to frame, five framework that most of us were stuck in. And is that framework really the one that makes the most sense for most of us? I can, I know how much adults struggle with it and kids who need to be, sleep more and have all these other things going on. I can only imagine how much that might handicap their ability to be at their excellence. And at the very least, it might hinder their ability to think of themselves in a higher way because they're going, the, the biorhythmic clock, if you will, is being stacked against them from day one. 
I love the distinction between qualitative versus quantitative teaching and looking at the deeper pieces of a child and what, how they're learning and what's going to be most applicable and helpful for them. You know, one thing that I think Omar really came through with this loud and clear, and it's something we can all consider is, is learning is a process that never ends. And, you know, whether it's reading, writing, arithmetic, us as big kids now, we may not use it as much as we used to, but one thing we all do still use is we all do still use the, the skill sets that we learned when we were kids of how to exist and connect and communicate with one another. And if children can have such a profound aha and awakening from taking a time to learn some empathy between one another, perhaps we all can too. You know, maybe just maybe so much of our call for overhauling and changing the educational system, while it sounds like there's definitely changes that need to be made, there's also a call for us to overhaul and change what we've learned and how we learn going forward. Perhaps instead of expecting teachers to do all the work for us, we can assume the mantle of responsibility ourselves and be the change that we wish to see in children. If we all resonate and agree with Omar and see that empathy and the value of it in the classroom, let's not wait for the teachers to start teaching it or the educators to get on board to have it be curriculum based. How about we all start right now? For those of you who have kids in your life, no friends that have kids or you just know kids, consider how you communicate going forward. Will you communicate with empathy and be an example for kids of what can be possible? Or will you communicate with something else? And perhaps be an example of how important it is to lash out and be vindictive when somebody has a different opinion. To be that person who just takes it until finally you don't know how to express it and then you lash out, whether it's through physicality or it's through emotionally or verbally. We don't need to wait till one of us gets suspended for us to learn. We can take what Omar shared today, start applying it right away. And I think through all that, we'll all build a better quality of life and world together. Omar, this has been so incredible, man. Thank you so very much for sharing. And I just so appreciate the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me as well to share my perspective as a teacher. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll see you next time, everyone, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to